Welcome to the Possibility Action Network podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Middleton, a.k.a. Possibility Man. We are committed to bringing you guests who strive to better people's lives and serve as a force for good in the world. Today, our guest is Pauline Cox. She hails from England and is a graduate of the University of Bristol, also located in the United Kingdom. She is a functional nutritionist, speaker, and author. She is a self-described science nerd. She is the co-owner of Sew and Arrow. Pauline, welcome to the show today. Hi, Stephen. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Well, I'm looking forward to our conversation. But first, this programming note to our listeners and viewers. Your support matters. Follow, like, share, and subscribe wherever you listen or watch this podcast program. Also, our sponsor information is below the description of this show. Your support matters. Pauline, look, I've been reviewing you for the past you know, a couple of weeks, and I tell you what, I just have a ton of questions to ask. I want to jump right into it. I noticed that you have taken a deep dive into science and nutrition. What I mean by that is that you have, I think, two graduate degrees, and I'm curious, why was this important to you? Why did you take such a deep dive into this? Can you share that with us? Of course, Stephen, thank you. I found that the more I started to learn, the more there was to learn. And it felt like this never ending journey. And to be honest, it still is. I I think that there's this incredible world that you can dive into where you start to understand one subject and it can feed you into another. So my first degree was in physical therapy or physiotherapy, as we call it here in the UK. And that led me to this really deep passion for human science and, and our physiology and anatomy. But that then led me down to the pathway of nutrition and understanding how food can become medicine to our bodies and the impact of what we're eating as well as our lifestyle habits on our ultimate well-being and our and our risk of chronic health issues so it fed into this desire to learn more and absorb more and share more of the knowledge that i was learning aha uh-huh, fantastic you know and, and looking at you uh, i want to talk about nutrition for just for a moment we're going to touch about nutrition at various times in our conversation but you know growing up many years ago some people talked about being a vegetarian that's the first thing that i heard uh today you hear people talk about vegan and uh whole food plant-based and you know low uh, low fat but then you though brand yourself as a functional nutritionist. So I want you to talk to us about first, what is functional nutrition and why do you use that gateway to talk about better health? Yeah, that's a great question. To me, functional nutrition is really about finding ways, finding foods and whole foods. It might be botanicals and adaptogens, all these really interesting sometimes ancient remedies from Ayurvedic medicine or herbalism and using those gifts from mother nature to optimize our human health. So it's it's looking more at just nutrition, which might be a dietary plan, but it's it's understanding the interaction between mother nature and these gifts that we have all around us and how they can impact our biological pathways from our mental well-being to optimizing our gut health to improving our blood sugars. So 
to me, functional nutrition is about using food as medicine and using these interesting novel approaches to common health issues that we have now and seeing if we can use natural approaches to help resolve and improve those conditions. Oh, that's encouraging. And, you know, I, I've also heard you talk about, and perhaps you've also written about this as well, that the body is predictable. And, you know, that strikes me as, whoa, the body's predictable. That means that if I take certain actions, then I can expect certain. Can you talk to us about that, please? Yes, yes. I think there's certain, we all have our variances, our genetic variances and our variances between males and females, but there are also certain things that are very predictable. You know, we need certain key areas to our health to be fulfilled. For example, we need movement in our life. We need daylight. We need certain key nutrients like essential fatty acids. We need certain minerals. And when we live in a certain way and eat in a certain way, our body responds in a very predictable way. If we eat too many sugars, our body um, responds in a predictable way. If we have too much stress in our life or too much of a sedentary lifestyle. So there are certain parameters that are very predictable. And then there are those more finer details that are based on our genetic variances, how well we might tolerate glucose or our potential risk to certain chronic illnesses. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, that, that makes sense. I follow you. You know, and that, that reminds me, a lot of people talk about holistic, you know, with an H-O-L-I-S-D-I-C. I like to say holistic with a W-H-O-L. <laughs> because you're talking about the whole body, and when you do things, the body responds appropriately. Yeah. Absolutely. And that holistic, as you mentioned, holistic approach is incredibly important, particularly in a day and age where we're exposed to high levels of chronic emotional stress where you know our world is a little more toxic than we would like it to be the air that we breathe the the um the soils of water it is a it's an environment that's not necessarily congruent to the one that our body would like it to be in terms of emotional stress and our food environment so taking that whole approach looking at what we the platform of health how we want to be optimizing sleep reducing emotional stress, getting a great amount of movement, and then taking a whole food dietary approach. Yeah, and that's that whole, that's that functional nutritionist path that, that you're on, looking at the whole being. So, you know, um, you know, a lot of people wonder about their ability to take action to change their health outcomes. But I noticed that you have talked about this and you've written about people having the power to change. Uh, you know, that, that the nutrition actually is, is one superpower, to call it a superpower that a person has to actually change their lives. Can you expound upon that? You've talked about it before, but expound upon that, yeah. I think food is very underrated when it comes to people recognizing the influence it can have on our energy, our mood, our sleep, our creativity, the the brain firing up and, and the neurons all talking and connecting. And when we get our nutrition right, when we start to give the body what it needs, first and foremost, then our biological systems will work optimally. It's like having a, a great car. If we don't give the car the right fuel and the oil and, and look after the car, maintain it, 
it'll go, but it'll just maybe chug along. If we give the car exactly what it needs, then it all of a sudden it goes from chugging along to really zipping along. And the body's the same, you know, we can get by, but we start to experience the symptoms of anxiety or poor sleep or nervous tension in our muscles, migraines. So we can start to read these symptoms and and really understand how those symptoms might be related to a subclinical deficiency in say magnesium or essential fatty acid deficiencies. And then as we address the food side of things and maybe even some supplements in there, then we can start to say, okay, here's our platform for health. Now, what else do we need to add in? Some better you know, stress management or um, getting some more creativity into your life or better connection with people. But first and foremost, if we get the foundations right, it makes those other things so much easier to achieve, Stephen. Yeah, you know, I love the functional nutrition approach, to tell you the truth. I like, and I like it because of this, is that you all, functional nutritionists like yourself, you see the body as a terrain, you know, as, let's say, a field where you're going to grow stuff. And you look at different elements. You mentioned it, genes, your environment, your nutrition, and then determine where are we missing something to cause the body to make some improvements? Is that about the approach, looking at a different aspect of your life and say, let's punch these types of holes and let's see what happens? Absolutely. I often find that my work is like being a human detective. So when I'm working with an individual, I'll ask them a whole range of questions from, how is how's how's their sleep for example or um their hair health their nail health their diet their stress levels even going as far back as were they breastfed as a child um were they delivered by c-section or vaginal birth um did they have recurrent antibiotics as a child or it, it really is piecing together these key pieces of information and looking at how that the experiences and the traumas and the um, life events in someone's history has shaped where they are today. And that comes from a whole range of emotional, physical, environmental influences, and then starting to use your kind of biological detective mind to figure out how those symptoms fit into that person's history and current symptoms. And as you very rightly pointed out, going from a genetic right through to a gut health, a liver health, a, a what medication they might be on, all the different influences that can result in symptoms or suboptimal performance. Right, I mean, just recognizing the possibility that, you know, people could actually improve their situation excites me. You know, a lot of you mentioned sleep a couple of times, and you also mentioned, and I appreciate it too, you mentioned trauma as well. Some people are not aware that sleep actually, the, the, the difficulty of falling asleep means that there's some activity of mind that's going on that they may not be aware of. Can you talk to us about that, please? And, and how can a person learn to resolve some of the mind you know, activity that might be interfering with their sleep? Yes, sleep. Often people think of sleep as just something that we do to rest our brain and we wake up again. A lot happens when we're sleeping. Sleep is an essential component of health. It really is. Optimal sleep helps to optimize our hormones, our blood sugars, our cortisol levels. And when we lack sleep, not only does it impact our mental well-being, but it also impacts our hunger levels, our satiety, our blood sugars, our cortisol, our energy levels. So 
to me, often when I'm working with someone, the first area I approach is sleep. Because once we start getting sleep right, then we can start getting mood and lack. We, we can start to take away from the need for stimulants like sugar and even alcohol and other stimulants that people use to get through the day when they're not getting adequate sleep. Wow. So really sleep is, there's two areas that impact sleep. As you pointed out, absolutely right switching off that's a big problem for a lot of people Stephen. they're tired but they're wired they need to sleep but they can't because their brain is in this very active overthinking popcorn thoughts coming everywhere they're in a in a state of fight or flight and they need to shift that state into rest and digest bringing their cortisol and adrenaline levels down and allowing the body to to increase levels of melatonin and gaba all out resting and sleep hormones so switching off is a major problem for a lot of people. Then we have the issue of um, lack of ability to build our, our melatonin, which is our sleep hormone, and our relaxation. And again, this often comes from lack of serotonin and a subclinical deficiency in magnesium, because so many people are low in magnesium because we deplete magnesium when we're stressed. We deplete magnesium when we're inflamed and we deplete magnesium when our blood sugars are creeping up. So you can start to see a lot of people are stressed, maybe eating a bit too much sugar and are a little bit inflamed because of maybe dietary choices and lifestyle choices. So we tend to be low in magnesium, which then impacts our ability to relax, switch off and get a deep nut sleep. Yeah, I tell you, and I'm happy that you, as I said before, that you use the word trauma and it doesn't have to be, you know, trauma like, but just some upset in a person's life that might impact the ability to sleep, but also to help. And I want you to, to help me with this uh, because I think there is a connection. I'm not a nutritionist or anything like that, but there's a connection between how a person feels and also set the manifestation of some diseases that there must be a mind body connection here can you tell us about this and and how that is how it's important for a person to come to terms with you know some of the upsets that might have happened in their lives yeah absolutely i mean you're you're so right trauma even so i believe we all experience trauma whether it's a micro trauma you know you as a child you were told off for doing something and it felt really big at the time even though it was maybe something minor or the trauma of heartbreak or the trauma of family breakup we all experience trauma to some extent and trauma becomes cumulative and particularly for women at perimenopause, this is where cumulative trauma can start to really show up and it can worsen the symptoms of perimenopause and menopause because the emotional burden we tend to carry in our nervous system in that we're constantly pumping out cortisol and adrenaline and these, these hormones are beneficial in short bursts. They can help us flee a tiger or, or get away from danger in our hunter-gatherer ancestral times. But in our modern environment, when we're continuously pumping out cortisol and these stress hormones, then they stop being beneficial and start being harmful to the tissues of our body. They can break down the body and they're not conducive to healing. So even the trauma of being told you have a chronic illness, you have cancer, or you have a de degenerative condition, that can set off a cascade of stress hormones that can make healing and 
improving the outcome really challenging so our thoughts our manifestation and how we see our health and, and the confidence we have in our own body to heal the innate healing ability we have is incredibly incredibly influential on our healing journey right and you've been at this for a while and and you once said uh, I, I did my work on you. <laughs> you said that it's possible to regenerate health. And once again, you've been at this for a while. Do you still take that bold position that it's possible to regenerate a person's health? Absolutely. I feel like we should never, ever put a ceiling on someone's ability to heal because we don't know someone's capacity to heal. We can be completely blown away by someone's innate ability to heal and i feel it's important that we don't do that to ourselves as well we shouldn't put boundaries on our own ability to regenerate our health and optimize our health there's an incredible book by um dr lisa rankin called mind over medicine and this book really examines how certain people just go into spontaneous remission when it comes to terminal illness and the importance of the health professional in expressing a diagnosis or a prognosis and how influential their words are on that person's healing or on that person's outcome negative or positive so the words we use on ourselves, in our mind and as health professionals are powerful and we need to be mindful of that you know i like that i'm a former teacher and, you know, I can remember in my career just giving a student the idea that I believed in you somehow triggered in that student, the ones who took me up on it. But you're saying the same thing applies to health, that the manner, the belief of a practitioner could have a positive effect on a patient or a client. Absolutely. It's called white coat syndrome. So mm. we put a lot of faith and power and confidence in an individual of authority, particularly when they're wearing a white coat. And so that person has a great responsibility in how they deliver information to their patient. And, you know, it can be influential over the course of that individual's health and outcome. So we don't know enough about the power of the mind over healing. We know there's, there's the placebo effect, that we know that um, there's countless research papers now showing how powerful the mind is when it comes to healing, but it's still it's still fringe science, really. It's certainly not mainstream science, and it's something that is very difficult because we can't we can't bottle it, we can't label it, we can't patent it, and so you know it, it it's difficult to see if it will ever become incorporated into into medicine and used in that manner but certainly there's research out showing how powerful the mind is when it comes to healing and the influence it has over our, our health and well-being yes you know and chronic conditions i mean are running rampant i would think throughout the world you know if you go to any country in the world you're going to find people faced with chronic conditions, more in some countries than others. And I'm going to throw some chronic conditions out there. And I want you to respond as to whether you think it's possible for a person to make some improvement in that area from your seat as a functional nutritionist. Is that fair enough? Really yes, to do that? Yes, okay, yes. let me throw one out there. A high cholesterol, especially, you know, the LDL that frightens a lot of people. What do you think? That's one chronic condition. 
Yeah, I think you have to look at cholesterol in a an overall picture. For example, if you have high LDL and high blood sugars, mm-hmm. so glycated hemoglobin particularly, which is kind of your three-month average, and you have um, maybe issues with weight as well and blood pressure, then we're looking at certainly a metabolic picture that's not ideal. And that could certainly lead you down a pathway of chronic illness and very high risk of serious health complications. Now, if LDL levels were elevated and you had great blood sugars, you were super active and your um, blood pressure was healthy and you're a slim individual and you work out a lot, your LDL levels might be increased because you're following more of a carnivore diet or you're, um, you eat a lot of saturated fat, you're, you're working out a lot, but the LDL itself, now not to overcomplicate things, Stephen, mm-hmm. but the LDL itself, if that becomes oxidized because it's in an environment where there's lots of sugar present, i.e. high blood sugars, that makes that individual more at risk of chronic health issues. Whereas if it's not oxidized, then the liver recognizes that LDL and it's happy to take it in, recycle it, and it does its job correctly. It's when there's some structural changes to the LDL and LDL levels become high. And that's where blood sugars become a big part of the picture. So it, with health, it's never, it's very difficult to have a tick box situation with health. We must always take a step back and look at the bigger picture. How does that how is that individual living and eating? What's their blood sugars? What's their inflammatory levels? Their their um their weight, their hip to waist ratio, and then we start to get a bigger picture, and it can it can give us an overall indication of their risk and how they're how they are likely to be on a health perspective. And one thing to mention on the LDL side of things, particularly oxidized LDLs. Omega-3 fatty acids are very important for helping to protect your cholesterol from becoming oxidized. So omega-3 fatty acids are are a really essential part of human health, mental well-being, um, our immune function, bringing our triglyceride levels down. So they have an important role and they're called essential because we can't make them ourselves. So we have to get them from our diet. And this is again an area that's really important for people to understand. Having your omega-3 fatty acids and not too much omega-6, which can be pro-inflammatory, is a fundamental principle of improving and optimizing our health, reducing the inflammatory and upping the anti-inflammatory. Yeah, look, I I get you because what what you just told us is that, okay, if your cholesterol is elevated, of course, it's time to take a look but the first response shouldn't be, give me the pill, you know, mm-hmm. because there's so many other things to consider in that, including that it's not a big deal that your cholesterol is elevated because other things are working fine too. Is that all right? Is that, you know, in, in, in the United States, I'll tell you, uh, people, when they go to the doctor, they're looking for that prescription. <laughs> you know, cholesterol, give me the drugs, man, give me the drugs. So, but you're saying yeah. it's not that simple. There's, there are many other things to, to look at. What I'm saying is we want to understand the bigger picture before jumping to a conclusion that elevated LDL is bad and labeling yeah. it as bad. Yeah. We want to look at, okay, LDL is elevated. Is there a reason for that? Is this individual um, losing a lot of weight and they're on a carnivore diet? Are they on a keto diet? Is this person fundamentally healthy? But that's one marker that's a little elevated, but actually they're not at risk because all these other parameters are normal and healthy. 
is that LDL oxidized or is it looking really healthy and it's absolutely fine? So you're right. We don't just want to jump to, ah, look, this person's come in, tick, they have elevated LDL, tick, they must go on a statin. We want to be, we want to be more tailored and specific and investigative and say, hold on a minute. No, this person is fundamentally healthy, but their LDL levels might be slightly elevated as opposed to, right, there it's elevated therefore they go on a statin and then there might be some negative consequences of going on that statin exactly oh gosh i'm glad you said that you know i think you know it's important right to weigh i mean because i'm sure you would say never take prescription drugs that's not, that's not what you're saying but 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 we also need to weigh the risks that are, yeah. you know, that are associated with them okay let me throw another one out actually okay. okay uh you've already touched upon it uh blood pressure you know, high blood pressure. Is that something, if someone walks into your office and say, or a Zoom with you, say, look, you know, uh, I'm your client, I got this blood pressure issue. Is there anything that I can do about it? What do you think? Oh, absolutely, for sure. And I think there's there's so many components to consider when it comes to blood pressure. Um, for, for example, stress obviously plays a big role in blood pressure, but so too does diet and our lifestyle. We have to understand that blood pressure it's not just related to one factor. It's something that can be, it's a picture that builds over time, Stephen. So one of the major drivers of blood pressure is something called insulin resistance. So let's imagine for a moment, we have someone who's eating lots of high glycemic index foods. That means foods that just spike our blood sugars all the time. So they might be having really sugary cereals or um, bagels and um sweet foods for their breakfast or very carby, high carb processed foods for breakfast, snacking at lunchtime, um, snacking throughout the day and their blood sugars are constantly being elevated to high levels and then they're slowly starting to come down and then they peak again, so we're eating again. And this picture over time causes the blood sugars to remain elevated because they're not getting mocked up by the cells as effectively because insulin is, one of insulin's jobs is to usher blood sugars into the cells. And over time, the cells stop listening and they're like, nope, I'm not taking any more blood sugars in. And so insulin levels creep up, blood sugar levels creep up, and this causes a problem. Mm. So in the cardiovascular system, insulin in small amounts causes vasodilation. So it relaxes the blood vessels, it's really good. But chronically elevated insulin causes a vasoconstriction of the blood vessels. So it causes the blood vessels to start to constrict and not do their job of relaxing and constricting. And this causes elevated blood pressure and it, it it's a driver of atherosclerosis and all sorts of chronic health issues. So insulin resistance is the silent underlying cause of many chronic health issues that we must address because there are millions of individuals who are at risk of these health issues because of insulin resistance. So can something be done? For sure. Controlling blood sugars, controlling, optimizing insulin sensitivity, and that in itself can start to see blood pressure beginning to normalize. That's, that's encouraging. I know you've also spoken about the DASH diet and blood pressure. Let me just, you know, I was speaking to a cardiologist last year, I believe it was, and he said that uh, a lot of people blame doctors for writing prescriptions. But he said in his practice, he noticed that people who do something like, and I, and I know I, I know you were going to tell us about the DASH diet, your, your view of it, but he said people who do something like the DASH diet, 
you know, perform better than those who use prescription drugs. So DASH diet, blood pressure, where do you stand on this? Yeah, I mean, the DASH diet is, is designed to reduce hypertension or, or high blood pressure. And listen, for a lot of people, the way they eat, it's an improvement. And I will say this about many, many dietary approaches, Stephen. People say, oh, you know, I went vegan, I lost all this weight, and I, I feel so much better now. But what are we comparing it to? The way they were eating before? What were you eating before? If you're living on fast food and processed food and, and junk food, then for sure, eating more vegetables and um, taking that fast food out of your diet is going to make an improvement. And it's the same with the DASH diet. It's a lot of whole grains and, and um, fruit and vegetables. And that is a significant improvement for a great deal of people. However, if you're looking to really optimize our health, it's important to also paint in that picture, the impact of foods on our blood sugars. And it, that really is a fundamental part of understanding our health is what's this food doing to my blood sugars? What's it doing to my insulin? And when we have chronically elevated insulin, that can be a big problem for our, our risk of chronic health issues. Yeah, okay. And the third chronic one, Pauline, that I want you to think about with us is uh, weight. You know, yes. I don't want to say obesity only, but just carrying some extra pounds. If someone says, "Yeah, I want to get, I want to get rid of this stuff," yeah, yeah. How do well, you... I think really weight is a very multifaceted situation. You know, there are so so many things that play into our weight status, um, whether we're male or female, for starters. You know, women we do tend to find that we gain weight sooner than men do at 35 to 40, when our hormones start to change, Stephen, a lot of women don't understand that we have this increased risk of insulin resistance because muscles use up a lot of blood sugars. So as we start to lose muscle mass, our blood sugars don't have anywhere to be used up as much. So they start to creep up. And any excess blood sugar that isn't stored as glycogen, the stored form of glucose, gets, used, gets stored as body fat. And so we want to be thinking about these high blood sugar spikes. If they're not being mopped up and used for energy, they're going to be stored as fat. So insulin resistance causes our blood sugars to creep up. That's a driver of increased weight. So insulin resistance is driven by inflammation. It's driven by um, stress. It's driven by magnesium deficiency. It's driven by for sure what we're choosing to eat. So the what we eat and when we eat are incredibly important for our weight status. If we're constantly elevating our blood sugars and our insulin spikes accordingly, then our body doesn't get the chance to go, oh, hey, hold on a minute. I've got some stored energy here that I want to be burning myself. It's like, oh, oh, here comes more blood sugars. Oh, okay, great. So it's constantly having this deluge of blood sugars that it's like, well, I don't really have anything to do with this. I'm just going to store it as fat. Whereas when we start to look at maybe intermittent fasting and windows of eating, once our, our body's like, oh, hey, there's nothing else coming in anymore, I'm going to store to this convenience. I'm going to turn to this convenient store of fuel I already have on my body. And it allows us to get that metabolic flexibility, the ability to use glucose for fuel and the ability to use fat for fuel that we have already stored on our body. Mm. However, if our insulin levels are high, then it blocks 
fat burning. Insulin will block our ability to burn fat. When wow. blood sugars come down and insulin levels come down, that's when the body can access its fat burning machinery. Wow. Woo, for the way you talk about it, it's like, man, this organism that we have is pretty smart, you know, at the cellular level. You say, this is a smart body, it, it takes care of you. <laughs> sure. You know what, Stephen, you hit the nail on the head there. Because we are, we are genetically wired to survive. We, we are wired to survive in times of scarcity. But we don't live in times of scarcity. So the food environment that we live in, it sends our caveman genes into a bit of a frenzy because we're designed to be motivated to go seek out food that gives us this hit of pleasure, dopamine. And because we're surrounded by it, when we eat these foods that are quite well designed to, to really trigger these pathways in our brain, our body's like, oh yeah, this is good. Remember this. So we get this big hit in dopamine. And then whenever we walk past or see a, a, a commercial or a, or we smell that same food again, the brain's like, remember how good that tastes? So it, we really are at a disadvantage in that we, we live in a world that's stimulating something that would have driven us in the past to go hunt out and seek that bush full of berries four or five miles away. Whereas now it's like we can't walk or even get to our vehicles without being hit with smells and visuals and cues to eat, 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 eat. So it, it's, a, it's a challenging world for these genetic desires we have to be quietened and try and try to ignore them. Yeah, mm. no, this is a good point for me to ask you about this because I love, I've heard you talk about the pillars of health. And it's, I've got to ask you to share on that. The, what's your take? You know, you've talked about this. What are these pillars of health that you, that you talk about? Yeah, pillars of health to me are the foundations of great health. So um, sleep being one of them that we spoke about, um, a nutrient-dense diet. So getting those core nutrients that we just absolutely need. Um, you know, we need, as I've mentioned before, the intelligent fats, the smart fats, um, omega-3s, there's two omega-3 fatty acids, EPA and DHA, that are really fundamental to, our, to supporting our brain health. And without them, we can really start to feel our mental health, our mood, our cognitive function, our focus start to suffer. And so when we're fulfilling these key nutritional tick boxes, it can help us to feel you know, alive and, and, and cognitively well and focused and help with our memory. And so finding, for example, foods like oily fish and eggs, foods that allow us to get these key nutrients. And even now, you know, there are novel ways of getting these, these intelligent fats, these superior fats, that we used to think we could only get them from oily fish. We know now that we can get um, these essential fatty acids, these intelligent fatty acids in other forms. For example, there's a British plant called ahi flower. And this particular plant has a really unique fatty acid profile in that it has four times the conversion of, of the plant-based fatty acids into EPA than say um, linseed or hemp. So there are these novel ways of finding ways to optimize our, our health, our brain health and our immune function through plant-based ways and sustainable ways rather than just getting fish oils or oily fish, which, you know, we, we, 
we can't really sustain the level of fishing with the, the a number of people. So we do have to find these ways of getting the nutrients needed for our human health without it being at the expense of planetary health. Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm going to take a look at a few of the things you've just mentioned in a moment, but I got to ask you because I get this feeling in, in listening to you that a functional nutritionist like yourself is also a mindfulness practitioner. If I got that wrong, correct me, I don't mind, but I just get this feeling about that. So where am I? Am I off base here? No, not at all. Not at all. I think, I, I believe strongly that we are a connection. We are a continuation of nature. And being in nature, walking in nature is incredibly beneficial to our health. It becomes a mindful experience when we when we listen to the birds, when we experience nature, when we feel the energy from trees and plants, and we allow ourselves to stop being separated from nature. And I think in that way, it allows us to be more respectful of the planet that we live on and live in and surround ourselves with. And it allows us to see that we have a symbiotic relationship with nature. We look after nature, nature looks after us. It's the same with our gut health, Stephen. If we care and look after our gut microbiome, it pays back in dividends. It's like little factories in there producing all these metabolites that are really beneficial to our health. And so we have this, this kind of beautiful bi-directional relationship with our own physiology and gut and gut microbiome, but also with nature and the environment in that we live and we're fortunate enough to live in. That's, that's really awesome. So I just want to circle back and just touch on a few things that you've all also already mentioned. And it's a, it falls in the category nutrition. You've mentioned brain foods. Mm. And, and I think in, in other places, I'm not sure if you said it today, but elsewhere I've heard you talk about brain foods and memory. Can you tell us a little more, take us a little deeper into that, please? Yeah, I think really, you know, I think we, we get to a point where we start to notice our memory can be a little less sharp. We're like, what, what was I talking about? And our recall starts to, to decline and we get brain fog. And our memory is part of our brain that is the same as many parts of our brain. It relies on a constant source of fuel and key nutrients for optimal functioning. Now, I've spoken about insulin resistance a few times today, but the brain is no, no different. It is a very hungry organ. It weighs about 2% of our overall body weight, but it consumes 20 to 25% of our overall energy demand. So it is a very hungry organ. And that's what makes us very, I don't wanna say superior, but it's what makes us the intelligent beings that we are. Our brain has this high demand for fuel, now, if our brain is demanding fuel and that glucose is unable to get into the cells anymore because of this insulin resistant state, then the parts of the brain that are demanding fuel start to become sluggish, suboptimal. They're not working as well. So we can find things like focus and concentration, even fear and anxiety, body temperature regulation, hunger levels. They all start to become dysregulated and dysfunctional because the brain is not getting the fuel and the nutrients it needs to really spark and connect in the same way. So as we start to improve our metabolic flexibility, the brain can start to use an alternative source of fuel to glucose in that it can use ketones, which is when fat breaks down. And these ketones don't need a transporter to get them into the neurons. 
they just push themselves in. And so ketones can really help to fire up our focus, our cognitive abilities, as well as, um, you know, the other parts of the brain, like the amygdala for fear, it can really bring down anxiety. Now, memory is another area of the brain that can start to suffer when we have that insulin resistant state. But also if we're suboptimal with our essential fatty acids, our key nutrients for brain health, zinc is another one, our B vitamins. So giving your body exactly what it needs in terms of nutrients can protect the brain from neurodegenerative conditions. Because again, high blood sugars have a really big impact on our, on our brain um, health, but also giving the brain the key essential fatty acids it needs. And I, I know I've mentioned this, but I just want to really push home the point that if you're plant-based and you're vegan, it's still very important to make sure you're getting not just ALA, which is the omega-3s you find in plants, but the EPA and the DHA. And these are your superior omega-3 fatty acids that are more challenging to get when you're plant-based and you you have to seek them out and find um, ways of getting these that are outside of fish oils and oily fish, which is where most people get them from and find these alternative novel ways of getting them like ahi flour I mentioned, which you'll find in, in lots of different supplements, soft gels and, and powders now. Um, algae people have been using for a while as well. So finding these other ways to fulfill those needs for your cognitive function and your brain function. Yeah. Okay. Look, I, I got more, got more, more questions for you. <laughs> uh, so look, uh, you know, fed for fuel, you, you, yes. you, touched, you touched upon it just a moment ago. Now, wait a minute now, but there's some nutritional plans that, and you've touched upon this, but I want you to dig a little deeper for me that says, you know, wait a minute, fat is bad. You want to do low fat all the way or no fat if you can, but you say fat for fuel. And can you isolate for that for me and talk a yeah. little bit more about that for me? Yeah, so fat for fuel, Stephen, isn't about just loading your plate up for f with fat to eat. Okay. Fat for fuel is about burning the fat that we carry on our body as a source of fuel. But if we're sugar burners and we just constantly overconsume carbs, then we never get to access that amazing fat for fuel that's already stored on our body. So it's about optimizing our metabolic health so that we can start burning fat for fuel as well as using glucose for fuel. Yeah. So it's about, we're dual fuel burners. And that's part of our ingenious design in order to be able to survive for periods of time without eating every two, three hours. We're designed to go days if necessary without eating. Wow. But some of us can't go two, three hours without being like, oh, I need to eat right now. Because our blood sugars, we're so used to eating carbs and, and things that spike our blood sugars all the time that we, we just don't have that metabolic flexibility. So as soon as our blood sugars go up, they start dropping. And that's when we feel that, oh, my gosh, I just need to eat something. When we have metabolic flexibility, if we haven't eaten for a little while, our body goes, oh, hold on a minute. I have a whole store of fat here that I can use for fuel. And it starts breaking down that fat and releasing ketones to use for fuel for the brain, the heart, the muscles. And so we're burning fat for fuel as an alternative source to glucose. And that really helps to ramp up our, metabol our metabolic health and it stops that excess storage of fat in our liver, in our visceral area and all over the body. Yeah, wow, okay. Does that make sense? Huh? Does that makes sense. Makes sense, indeed. Yeah. Indeed, yes. Okay. Yes. Um, you've mentioned something, uh, and I'll tell you up front, 
I had never heard of the ahi flower until I started doing my research about you. And I wanted to isolate space to hear you talk more about, first, what is the ahi flower, if I pronounced it right, and why is this important to our diet, to our nutritional plan? It's a really good question because up until about a year and a half ago, I hadn't heard of it either, but it's, it's grown in the UK. And first of all, it was thought to be a weed. And this is what I love about um, finding these incredible plants is that we don't know the gifts that Mother Nature gives us until we really start delving in and, and understanding what these plants can give us. And we're like, all of a sudden, this, this plant that we thought was a weed is now something that could be incredibly important for us, for our human health. So it's grown here in the UK and it's sustainably grown. It's grown regeneratively. And this is one of the things I love about this plant is that I'm passionate about soil, soil regeneration, regenerative farming, farming that really enhances the ecosystem, the butterflies, the, the insects, the soil health. We're not just farming and concerned with getting as much crop as we can. We're looking at how that crop influences the soil as well as the, the plants, the butterflies, the birds, the bees, all of the things around it. So this is grown in a regenerative, sustainable way. And that in itself is a beautiful thing. Now the fatty acid profile of this plant is something that's quite unique. And this is what really sparked my interest as a scientist. Now plants have omega-3s in them. But they're a group of omega-3 fatty acids called ALA. Now, these ALA fatty acids, we need to convert into EPA and DHA in order to get the benefits for our brain health and our cognitive function and our mental well-being. But the conversion rate of ALA into these intelligent fats is pretty low in humans. And in fact, it's even lower if we have a high omega-6 diet, which... Honestly, most people do. Mm -hmm. So we get a, a low conversion, even when we're eating hemp and flaxseed, we get a low conversion into these intelligent fats. Now, here's where ahi flour came into the picture. The limiting, the rate limiting step in that conversion is a middle fat called SDA. Mm -hmm. Now that SDA, if a plant was high in SDA, then the SDA conversion to EPA and DHA, particularly to EPA, is higher. So this plant is really high in this SDA. So all of a sudden we got four times higher the conversion into EPA, this intelligent, this superior fat that we as humans need. And so we're starting to look at this, this plant and, and think, hold on a minute, this is, this is almost like having a a plant-based fish oil. This is giving us this superior fatty acid profile that could help satisfy our need for these fats without overfishing or without farming fish purely for the fish oil side of things, which we know are really beneficial, but not when we're farming specifically to take the um, fish oils. And, you know, we, we can't sustain that. Yeah. Wild Alaskan fish oils, fine, that's one thing. But when we're when there's a huge proportion of the fish oil industry that's based on just 
farming and trawling and overfishing these particular fish, um, anchovetas they're called, and then using that for fish oil, we must find more sustainable ways of meeting our omega-3 requirements. Yeah, woo. I know I find all of this inspiring, especially as you've been talking about the soil and the bees and the bugs. And it's, whoa, I, I got a, I got a spiritual rush for that. It's like balance is, is, is so important, right? Balance and balance the diet, balance in the environment. And uh, that's great. Absolutely. And, and without that, Stephen, everything in nature revolves around balance. Do mm. you think it really does with the seasons? Um, our, our health, we all, our body always wants to come back to homeostasis, which is a natural state of balance. And if we over farm or we, we try and mortgage the earth, we, we can't, we can't pay back. We, we have to see that there's, there's only so much as a tipping point when it comes to taking from the earth, we have to give back and not just take. Otherwise we're going to destroy the very planet that we live on. Yeah. And you've mentioned the word um, sustainable a few times. And I know that you are an advocate of sustainable lifestyle habits. Could you take us into that world as you see it? Yes. I'm a big fan of nose to tail eating. So I believe strongly that if we are going to make food choices that involve meat um, and cattle, for example, or even chicken, we want to look at how we use the whole of the animal. So for example, um, if we're having a chicken and roasting a chicken, using the carcass to make a, a beautiful healing bone broth, mm. or um, looking at cuts of meat that we might ordinarily overlook like liver um, and using organ meats and maybe looking at using bones to, to cook up a nice uh, beef bone broth. Mm -hmm. So rather than vilifying certain foods and food groups like meat is bad and plants are good we want to be looking at creating balance some meat high quality farmed correctly and regeneratively is beneficial to our health and to the planet because grazing animals are really beneficial to our planet they drop their manure which nourishes the soil they trample on soil which helps with soil regeneration they're grazing which sequesters carbon from the environment but it's when we have industrialized meat production and we over consume meat cheaply produced at the cost of the planet that's detrimental to our health and the planet health so in my mind, it's about looking at how we create balance with plants and meat and have this beautiful relationship between um, animals grazing, plants growing and mixed crops and and rotating crops, rotating fields so that the soil gets to become regenerated. And then respecting of each other's views on these things as well. You know, if someone wants to be plant based because those are their beliefs that they don't want to eat animals, I, I respect that and equally respecting that some um, believe that it's part of our ancestral health to choose quality meat and how that animal's been raised mm -hmm. and see the benefits for you and your family of eating high quality um, animal products. Right, I tell you, that's why the education is so important, you know, to know, because, uh, anyway, that's, that's wonderful, I, I love it. Um, but I do have one more question, Paulie. Do you have time for one more question? Of course, Stephen. Okay, great. I mentioned that you are an author, and I know that you've written 
a relatively new book that's entitled Primal Living in a Modern World. Uh, would you tell us about this book and, and also share with us your intention in writing this book and what you hope readers would get from it? Yeah, but, so this, this was my first book, Primal Living in a Modern World, was really intended to speak to those people who find themselves accidentally unwell. You know, when you're, you feel like you're doing the right thing and you're trying to eat healthy and you're trying to be, make, make great choices and you still don't feel well. You feel tired, you feel anxious, you can't sleep, you feel exhausted, you might become anemic, you might have all of these health things and you're frustrated because you're like, well, how did I get like this? I've been making great choices. And that was me 10 years ago, you know, I was frustrated because I thought I was being really healthy. Then I started to head down the, the really researching our cellular physiology and understanding all the different components that impact our health. And I recognize that we, we are at odds with how we're supposed to be living. And that's difficult to change because we live, you know, we're quite isolated in how we live. We eat quite highly processed foods. We don't move enough. We have a lot of emotional stress. And so it's how we live in a primal way, but in our modern world, in our modern environments. So it's taking ancestral wisdom and merging it with current science and understanding and seeing how we can bring those two worlds together to optimize our health. Yeah, I love it. Primal living, move about. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Get in touch with our caveman genes, our ancestral genes, and understand that when we go against those genes, those urges, those needs, that's when we start to suffer. Yeah. What about walking bare, bare feet? Is that also a primal living? Walking yeah. bare feet? I mean, you know, yeah, I know we have, a, we have a lot of concrete everywhere these days, but, you know, as a kid, yeah. I walked bare feet. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, actually, there's a lot of benefits, Stephen, to getting outdoors bare feet and standing on grass, mm. getting the energy from the earth. It's called grounding. And grounding is really super beneficial for us getting our bare feet on the grass and just standing for five minutes in the morning, getting the daylight into your eyes, breathing in the fresh air and, and allowing yourself to become grounded with the earth. Wow, I love it, I love it. Well, Pauline, you've been a great, great guest. I've enjoyed our conversation immensely. When you read that second book, I'm gonna bring you back to have you talk about it. So, <laughs> yeah. So do, do you have a project that you're working on? Are you working on a second book now? You know, my second book's being published in, in the springtime, so yeah. Oh, well, 2023 <laughs> then. I'm going I'm to reach out to you. I'm going to bring you back to talk about your new book. So enjoy it. Okay. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. You're so, so welcome. Thank you for being a great host. Okay. You've been listening to or watching the Possibility Action Network. Our guest today has been Pauline Cox, a functional nutritionist in the United Kingdom. I'm your host, Stephen Middleton. Until next time, good day.